Welcome to the Plugging In Podcast. My name is Alina Ivan, and this episode is the third in a five-part series, looking at when our relationship with social media is good, when it turns sour, and how we can make the most of social media while keeping our mental health in check. Today, I'll be picking apart one of the buzzwords of the moment, social media addiction. At one point, I think I started to get addicted to Instagram. Not in the sense that I was on it all the time. There was a lot of pressure to put up, like, your first picture, yeah. your second picture. I just, still haven't posted there's, my first picture. Yeah, <laughs> like, there's just a lot of pressure to keep up and keep posting nice pictures. Mm. So sometimes I'd be like, oh, maybe I should wear makeup on this day so yeah. I could take pictures and then post it on Insta. Or maybe I should go to this place with my friend who invited me because... I'll be able to take pictures and put it on Instagram. Mm. So I just think it's something that's ingrained into who we are now. Last year, UK MPs, in collaboration with the Royal Society of Public Health England, issued a report calling for research to tell us if we need a clinical definition for social media addiction. I was becoming like a robot, so I continuously went back to my phone or to my computer to have a look at Facebook. But the only things that it gave me was a kind of Addiction. Internet addiction was a term coined by New York-based psychiatrist Ivan Goldberg in 1995. He posted a note in a psychiatric journal inventing the term Internet Addiction Disorder, which featured symptoms such as involuntary tapping of the fingers. These symptoms impaired one's social activities or work, just like symptoms of drug addiction where he adapted the definition from. It was intended to be a satirical note on the increasing tendency to medicalize various behaviors, yet Goldberg's inbox was flooded with stories of people seeking help for these symptoms. Well, in general, I think we already have far too many diagnoses in psychiatry anyway, 500, 600, 700, who knows? But actually, it's far too many. So the immediate reaction to anyone proposing a new diagnosis is no. And I'll stick with that until people can show me that it even begins to qualify under what we normally call an addiction. Is social media addiction, then, a valid phenomenon? To find out, we hear about people's experiences with problematic social media use. Then we explore if this very modern-sounding phenomenon has any roots in history. Before we end, we look at where scientific research is heading. It would be very hard to make any conclusive statements about whether the use of social media can be problematic without looking at how it feels like not using it in this day and age, which brought me to Somerset House back in February. I came here to learn about the work of Finnish artist Nastia Saderonko. She disconnected from the internet for six months while being based in one of the busiest cities, London. What gets us hooked on social media? It's designed to be addictive. It's that like mm. dopamine hit that you get because it's instant kind of gratification and oh, another image, another image and you kind of never know what you get but it's always mm. quite exciting. Being offline away from it all, I realized that it is actually quite a big thing like for our well-being and it is affecting our mental health a lot and as you said, unless you go offline you don't really know. Personally, after a few months I felt really calm. I was able to focus on things. I didn't have that, oh I'm doing this but I'm just gonna answer a few emails here and 
uh, it was really easy just to like be or read a book or just sit on a bus and look out of the window. And uh, before that, I found that really difficult. Mm. But also now I'm back to like, you spend quite a long time in buses in London. So it's like, I answer emails or I do this and that there. It's like, hmm. On our way out, Nastia told me that social media can be fun, as long as you can put your phone away. An article in The Onion, the American satire magazine, seems to echo the feeling. It's titled, Americans demand a new form of media to bridge entertainment gap while looking from laptop to phone. And I'm wondering, could feeling compelled to check what's on our phones multiple times a day say something about how we tolerate boredom nowadays and how much excitement we expect in our lives? Have these expectations changed with the advent of social media? In their book, Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid, Changing Feelings About Technology from the Telegraph to Twitter, Professor Luke Fernandez of Weber University and cultural historian Susan Matt explore how different technological developments have shaped the inner lives that we are experiencing today. So I was very keen to speak to them both. Every time we feel that sense of micro-boredom, there's a tendency to go online. And while that may stamp out those fleeting feelings, they're not great for perhaps developing a more sort of creative, a more, more creativity. So that perhaps we could use our time more constructively if we were able to endure at least little, little bits of boredom, uh, which would impel us perhaps to think more reflectively, more internally, and, and based on that sort of internal reflection, develop a more creative sense. You know, there's a growing history called the history of emotions, and there are a lot of researchers in England and Germany and uh, in the U.S., and we're all sharing the conviction that there's ample evidence that our feelings change over time and vary across cultures. How 21st century people experience loneliness or narcissism or boredom is not the same as earlier generations did. And in fact, earlier generations had different words than we do for understanding the experience of being alone or the experience of having unfilled time. And just to enlarge on that, you know, we think of our emotions as sort of upwelling naturally, sort of biologically from some, something inside ourselves. And I think what our book is showing and what the history of emotions is showing is that our feelings are not just determined by our biology, they're also determined by the way we interpret those sensations that are upwelling. We need to be able to direct our attention in ways that benefit us. Mm. Um, and then if we're always very intolerant of moments of microboredom and constantly going online, perhaps we can't focus our attention on the more meaningful things in life that we could be proud of in the long term. I haven't checked the history on this, but certainly I think it's a meme that I've seen circulating on the internet um, that, you know, Isaac Newton um, developed the theory of gravity partly because he was self-isolating because of, of a plague. Would he have been able to do that if he was just hopping mm -hmm. on Facebook every moment that um, he was faced with the moment of boredom? So we can have perhaps some Isaac Newton moments of our own, but if, if we're <laughs> going to do that, we need to use social media wisely. Yes, to connect with others, but not to have our, all of our attention expropriated. We'll now hear from Michael, a university lecturer from the Netherlands, whom I've indirectly got in touch with, ironically, through posting on social media. 
he explains why he decided to delete his social media presence. We want everything right now. I was just listening to Arcade Fire, <laughs> to their album, uh, Everything Now, which mm. always reminds me of that we as a society, we don't have a lot of patience, I think, anymore. And we can see that in our phone usage. Every, we want to know everything now and we want to get all the pleasures right at this moment. And with um, social media, that's the same. And what I did, for example, is turning off the notifications. But I still notice that sometimes I just automatically take up my phone and unlock it and, uh, and open WhatsApp, for example, or even news sites just as a, an automatism. Michael has been offline for a few years now. However, George went off social media and decided to come back. I'm 26. I'm from London and I'm a high school teacher. Making the decision to come off social media in 2018 was not so much just a reason in and of itself, but more of a way to claim to power and like taking responsibility for my own mood. And coming off it was something that... Yeah, it didn't solve everything, but helped. And up until 2020, when I decided to come back on it, because I was in a more stable position and a better and a positive mood, and I was able to kind of get back involved with social media and take positive things from it without getting any negative flack that I would have got from it at a time that perhaps I was less stable and my mood was more negative, really. But in 2020, I could purely take the positives of being able to connect with people from it, which is the reason I kind of reinstalled it. It was fascinating to hear about the somewhat different journeys that Michael and George had with getting unhooked from social media. Thinking about the future, we hear again from Cheryl, whom we've heard from at the beginning and whom I've met through the Biomedical Research Council Youth Award. She worries that overusing social media will interfere with the education of future generations. It had the potential to take over my life, but I didn't let it because um, I already knew what my priorities were. So I already knew that my education is my number one priority right now. um, So I'm not going to let anything else taint that. But even with that mentality, that tunnel vision, there was still a period of time where Instagram was beginning to like just be on my mind all the time. And I, th- I feel like that's, that has really big implications for people who are being born around this time because they're not going to have enough time to get their priorities straight before they're introduced to the, the whole system of social media. So I think it just will take over their lives and they won't really have anything to stop that from happening. And I think that would be very dangerous. But for me, right now, social media has not taken over my life because I won't let it take over my life. I then went to the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London to find out how we can measure and investigate problematic social media use. I spoke to Professor Sir Simon Wesley, former president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. It's always dangerous to ask someone of my age. I'm 122, I qualified in the Victorian era, etc., etc. And so it's always dangerous to ask anybody of my generation anything about digital or social, etc., because you tend to get rather grumpy, out of touch, believing that this is the end of civilization and family life as we know it. And most of the criticisms of social media come from people like me, and they're usually the people who don't actually use social media very much, if at all. So you've got to always take everything anyone says, particularly of my generation, with a pinch of salt. 
However, I'm slightly unusual because I actually think it's not a bad thing. If you ask people now about why do we have a rise in mental health problems in young women, 18 to 24, which indeed we do, it's the only rise we've had in 70 years in any group, um, almost invariably when I ask an audience what's the cause, I've never been, in fact, I've never had an audience that doesn't immediately, the first person always says social media. Um, I've never had it the other way. But if you actually look at the evidence, you find it's actually quite poor. The effect seems to be, if there is a negative effect, quite small. And you find that the negative impact, if there is one, is um, just about significant, but that's because the studies are absolutely massive. One thing there isn't is a shortage of data. Um, but compared to the known causes of poor mental health in young women, it's an order of magnitude lower than abuse, bullying, taking cannabis, etc. And indeed, it's about the same impact as not having a regular breakfast. Um, so it's a small one. And yet, in terms of the screen time that we devote to this issue, um, you would think social media is the only thing in the world. So overall, I think it's probably a zero-sum game. You probably expect that we were going to ask you this. <laughs> what do you think about social media companies handing over data to universities for research? Yes. Um, this I don't know when this podcast is going out, but this was a big story a few days ago. The Royal College of Psychiatrists called for social media to indeed hand over their data to respectable, I think they called it, academics. Um, <clears throat> it got enorm It got more publicity, that one... Uh, press release and comment than we got in the whole of last year for all our comms. That one story created more at all the indexes we have of media activity than everything that we did in 2019. So it's a huge story. But I don't think it can be done. Um, and I don't think it should be done, actually, because when you think, just if you just step back and think that, that you know, there are laws on data and data protection and research, um, in order to make that data meaningful, it's got to be quite rich because you want to look at mental health. Mental health is uh, sensitive personal information mm -hmm. and as such, it's covered by wh whichever country you're in uh, will have some form of data protection law, GDPR, for example. And that kind of data, <clears throat> to make it useful, will have sensitive data and it will be identifiable or potentially identifiable. So how you can do that without consent um, seems to me you can't. I think far more sensible is to call for a system like we have with um, ONS, the Office of National Statistics and others, in which you, the researcher, goes inside the data wall or the barrier of the company and then is allowed to look at that data within the company, uh, not take it away, you know, not use any data sticks, etc., and do whatever analyses are needed within the firewall and, again, subject to um, the usual you know, legal restrictions on these. It looks like it'd be very tricky to investigate the detrimental effects of social media use based on data from social media itself. However, clinician scientist Dr. Rina Duta has found a way around this barrier. The study is a one-year study called social media, smartphone use and self-harm in young people. And what we're aiming to do is to study two different groups of people. Um, they're going to be patients who have mental health problems um, between the ages of 13 to 25, but also young people um, who are not known to mental health services. And we're going to be looking over that period at their use of social media um, and also how they're using their smartphones. So what things are they posting to social media publicly? And this is with their full informed consent. So they will have consented to particular platforms to be looked at and also consented to their passive data use. So um, how they're 
using their telephone in terms of SMS texts or the different apps that they open on their phone when they're using them at different times of the day or night. So this is really novel type of study. It's going to be conducted over a full year and collecting data specifically for the purpose of seeing whether there's any link between um, social media use, smartphone use and and self-harm behaviour. Obviously, we're expecting more self-harm behaviour amongst the patient population and that's why we think it's really important to study them. But we also think it's very important to have the comparative population with individuals who come from a, a general population setting as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the background of the research? A lot of the research to date has been secondary uh, data analysis, which basically means that data has been collected for different purposes, different studies. um, And then after the event, researchers have thought, oh, I wonder if we can answer a question about screen time and mental health. And then they've used that data like post hoc, basically after the event, to um, analyse for those things. But the study was not originally set up, for example, to look at that particular question. It was set up for something quite different. So that means that we can't exactly tell if there's a clear link. That's true. And also... The types of studies to date have involved a lot of self-reported measures, which means it's involved adolescents, for example, saying, oh, yes, I think I used this many hours of screen time. It hasn't, um, or I think I've used my smartphone for this many hours per day. So it's a very much um, a judgment call. It's not factually based, whereas Mm. our study... um, improves upon that a lot by actually having it as an objective, actual measure of what they're actually doing. What is the research currently telling us about social media addiction? If there are elements of addiction, then it's behavioural addiction. I think we have to be quite clear about that. I'm actually at the moment preferring to use the term problematic smartphone use. Mm. I think that it is problematic in a small minority of individuals at the moment. But I think to discuss a new phenomenon and label it addiction without the full evidence to back this up can be a little problematic and difficult um, to understand properly. I think we should be a little bit more cautious and talk about it as problematic use or overuse. Can you tell us about what changes in the brain when people develop problematic social media use? I'm not actually a a neuroimager. I don't um, study um, what happens chemically within the brain either. Um, But I think when people's smartphone use becomes problematic and their behaviour begins to change so that it becomes like the core um, feature of their life. It becomes really all-consuming. They get really twitchy or um, their emotions change if the battery is running low or their mood changes so that if they're on it they feel really euphoric and elated um, but then if it's taken away from them they feel increasingly sort of withdrawn. Then these sorts of effects obviously are seen um, with um, substances and I think this is why some researchers and in the lay press it's often talked about as an addiction. I think it's tricky with the evidence that we currently have to say this is exactly what happens in the brain. I'm not aware that anyone can actually say that definitively at the moment but certainly we have to be cautious and wary about what is happening to people that are potentially vulnerable. I think that there are young people, some of my colleagues' own work shows that certain young people are overusing smartphones and uh, this is a global phenomenon as well. It's not just confined to any one or two countries.
we have to remember that each person's interaction with the digital world is very, very different. And so although there may be some potential for harmful use, there are also some real positives to come out from the digital interface as well. And if used in a sensible manner with a degree of self-regulation, which perhaps young people who have had this throughout their lives really are going to need some help with, then I think it can be used to really um, enhance life. I, I don't think to just say, oh, well, if someone uses more than X amount of hours of screens, this is necessarily bad because they could be using it in a really um, interactive, productive way, an educational way, for example. Um, that could be very different from, um, you know, becoming very bogged down in a very negative thought process, you know, looking at other people's images and thinking that their lives are amazing and that their own, you know, that could potentially feed into poorer self-esteem. So I think it's very, very nuanced and we need to think of it as a very heterogeneous or a very variable um, entity that needs to be studied in much greater detail than just the amount of time. We've been guarded against using the labels social media addiction in a casual way. But that's not to put away the responsibility to care and support for those in need. It's possible that if we learn to distinguish between the useful and the destructive behaviours that we engage in when using social media, we may let ourselves off the hook with or without unplugging from social media. In the next episode, we explore the psychology and history behind selfies, a new phenomenon such as fear of missing out. Thank you for listening.